I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GOAT team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legends of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Unfortunately, the detectives are not in the same building or even in the same room. But we are together, as always, and I appreciate that so that we can address and talk about some of those wonderful issues that are going on in aviation today. Of course, COVID has really put a damper on aviation, and the airlines are still struggling every time they try to change a policy they create controversy. So we've got a lot to talk about on this show, and I'm going to get into it after you say hello. Well, welcome to everybody to the podcast, and here we are at it again. And yes, I'm sick of being locked up. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, me too. Well, the one thing that I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks, because there's been some very tragic accidents that occurred over the holiday weekend of 4th of July. There was some disturbing news coming out of Pakistan with regard to pilots. And I ended up becoming torqued. The name of your column in Aviation International News that you write called Torqued, well, this stuff torqued me off, and I decided that this is the show that we need to just vent and unload because I've got a lot to say, as I always do. And it was just a bunch of different circumstances the last couple of weeks that have frustrated me with general aviation pilots, uh, especially a flight instructor taking three passengers in a 172 in Utah and trying to fly in high terrain, mountainous terrain, with a high-density altitude because of a high ambient temperature. And, of course, bunch of witnesses on the ground saw the airplane fly up basically a box canyon tried to turn around the classic stall spin and you have four fatalities now what makes this accident a little more prominent than someone else is the fact that the pilot in this particular accident who was a certified flight instructor happened to be a former major league baseball player and Regardless of the fact that he was the baseball player, that's what gave him the notoriety. He was a certified flight instructor. And I just don't understand when he put three adults and himself in a Cessna 172 on a hot day, high altitude in Utah, what he possibly could have been thinking and believing as far as the fact that he was going to successfully conduct this flight. We don't really know what the purpose is, but I got a feeling it was probably some sort of sightseeing in that high high terrain. And he put himself and those three people in a position of jeopardy. But the problem I have is the fact that he was a certified flight instructor. I've worked several accidents in the recent past involving flight instructors, making those kinds of decisions. And I just do not understand it. The decision-making is getting worse instead of better, it seems. If you look at the accidents and the decisions that were made that got them into a condition that they couldn't recover from, I mean, what's going on? 
Where are we going wrong, John? I mean, you and I talk about it. We've talked about it for as long as we've been friends, all the time we spent at the safety board together, that we talk about it on this show. What is happening with rational, logical decision-making? Well, if we can answer that question, we could be heroes. I know. It just makes no sense to me that a flight instructor, and I know part of it is probably a bit ego-driven. You have a baseball player right there, anybody that's aspired to that level in sports, has a bit of an ego. We always talk about the fact that pilots can't really have egos because egos get you in trouble. But here you have a flight instructor, somebody who has the responsibility to take that judgment and that aeronautical decision-making to another level because you're teaching other pilots how to make good decisions, how to exercise good judgment. And then you have the instructor just basically throwing all of that out the window to accomplish some mission, whether it was sightseeing, showing off, whatever. The fact is, is that there were enough telltale signs before that airplane ever left the ground to know that that flight may not be successful. I mean, didn't he realize how sluggish the airplane was performing with all that weight at that altitude? You know, John, I should do the performance on that because I'm sure that the ground run for the takeoff was extended with all those folks on board. Don't really know how much gas, but a lot of airplanes that get parked typically have pretty much full tanks or close to full tanks. If you don't park your airplane with full tanks, then you run the risk of accumulating condensation, water in the fuel, and that creates another problem. So, you know, you can start making assumptions, but I would just love to understand what the logic, what the decision-making process was that morning for that flight instructor to make the decision that he could successfully conduct a flight with four adults on a 172 high temperature, high density altitude in mountainous terrain. And fly into a box canyon. Yeah. Obviously sightseeing. Yeah, I mean, because there was a husband and a wife and then uh, another, apparently a friend of his as well. So you would assume something like that. And it is one thing to show them the sights. If you're going to go do that, either do it early in the morning or very late in the afternoon when the temperature cools down. But you don't do it mid-morning, mid-afternoon, that's for sure. And then on top of that, John, we had a very tragic event over uh, Coeur d'Alene Lake up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, where we had a midair collision that, again, this one, while the prominent person on this, which was a professional golfer and part of his family were on that airplane, he wasn't flying. He was a passenger on a sightseeing the twin otter. They were flying over the lake, and unfortunately, they were in the same airspace as a Cessna 206 that was occupied by a husband and wife that had come out of uh, Spokane, Washington. And unfortunately, they met over the lake and tragically killed eight people. And again, in this day and age of ADSB and all the rules of the road, and you're going over a prominent landmark on a holiday weekend while the sightseeing is there, why isn't anybody talking? Why isn't anybody making calls in the blind on a frequency? Why isn't anybody monitoring? Why isn't your head on a swivel? Why aren't you clearing the area, doing a high recon and then a low recon over the area just to make sure that you know who and what is in the area? I just, these things are just frustrating because we talk about it. All of our other friends and colleagues who do shows and write articles we're constantly talking and writing about it, but the message doesn't seem to sink in. And it's just very, very frustrating when we have a tragic loss of life like that. The safety board's going to go out there. They're going to recover the wreckage. They're going to tell us what the impact attitudes and angles were. Great. That's fact. Okay. Whoopee. 
I mean, you basically don't need to leave the office to figure out the fact that they came together. And yeah, they didn't see each other. That too is a fact because they didn't take evasive action to avoid the accident. But the question is, what set that accident up? What did the pilots do and not do to take those kinds of precautions? You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people would say that just because of the, the virus and people haven't been flying. But these problems existed long before this point in time. We've seen the, the same kind of accidents over and over again. I mean, it's not unusual to see a 172 accident. It seems like that's probably the airplane that crashes the most, and that's because it's a training airplane. There's a lot of reasons. And, uh, you know, it's it's not the most powerful airplane in the world, and it's certified for four people, but really under very limited conditions. Can you successfully fly all the things that you can do in a 172 when you're a single pilot with four people on board? So we can expect to see 172 accidents, but what we're seeing today just leaves you shaking your head it, it does and and one of these airplanes was a commercial operator they were a tour operator so what are the policies the procedures the protocols for operating in that area given the fact that it is a popular sightseeing site and we don't know really what uh, was going on with the folks in the Cessna 206 as they were traversing the area and hopefully we'll be able to learn some valuable lessons but we say that about every single accident when we want to learn lessons we talk about it others talk about it yet those lessons learned don't seem to stick <laughs> i mean we we haven't fixed the the midair problem we put better equipment on the airplane especially with adsb where we're able to see other aircraft electronically around us and the question is did these airplanes have it? Were they equipped? Was it functioning? And was it used properly? Right. Did they know how to use it? Yeah. You know, it's fairly new, and we haven't had a lot of flying for, by a lot of people because of the virus this year. So if these guys, uh, this pilot has been sitting at home because he couldn't get out there and fly, given the other conditions that are going on. Yeah. Uh, what has that done to him? Did he fully understand it? Like so many people, we see pilots and others that just don't understand the technology that's available to them today in the cockpit. Yeah. Eons ago, when uh, when I was with the safety board, I did a mid-air collision over Niagara Falls. It was two helicopters, one coming off the Canadian side and one coming off the U.S. side. Unfortunately, they met not quite in the middle, but almost, and tragically killed four people on one helicopter and one on the other the pilot was able to milk the aircraft to an emergency landing on the u.s side he survived and i believe if i remember right one other survived but when you start looking when i started asking for i want to see the policies the procedures the protocols about you know how you operate your aircraft and then i did the same thing with the canadian folks there was no coordination and you had two different helicopters flying two different directions at the same altitude in the same piece of airspace. And it's like, why don't you come up with a plan where if you come off the Canadian side, you're at an altitude plus 500 feet. If you come off the U.S. side, you're at an altitude minus 500 feet, odds and evens, so that you don't have these problems. And yes, if you do, in fact fly in an opposite direction, which these two helicopter operators were doing, then you have to be at different altitudes. Because even if you're at the same altitude and you think you can see somebody to avoid an accident, you can't. We've seen that over and over and over again. I mean, very simple policies and procedures. And of course, the argument was, well, why does that guy get to fly lower than me? His people are going to get a better view. And all of a sudden, now you get into a discussion about profit in tourism versus safety. And it is those kinds of arguments and those kinds of discussions 
that are frustrating, but more so they're ridiculous because, you know, you're going to compromise safety so that you can give somebody a view 500 feet lower. Really? Niagara Falls is pretty darn big. (laughs) Yeah. 500 feet isn't going to matter. Those two things are, are frustrating just because of some of the circumstances involved. But the thing that really just torqued my screws, and you and I have been talking about it, and you and I have been preaching it better than 20-plus years because we've experienced it, we've seen it, I've dealt with it firsthand in my travels all over the world working accidents. You and I talked about it with Lion Air. You and I talked about it with Ethiopia, and that is unqualified pilots. We started to take some hits in social media, people going, you always blame the pilot. It was really the 737 Max that killed these guys. It wasn't bad piloting. Guess what? It still is bad piloting. You and I proved it with Lion Air. You and I basically have proved it with Ethiopia. And oh, by the way, where's the Ethiopian final report on their accident? They put out this, quote, interim final report. Where's their final report? I can't wait to see that one because I want to dissect that one just as we did with Lion Air. But the bigger thing is Pakistan. Pakistan finally figured out somehow, some way, that a third of their pilots in that country hold fake pilot's license and have been flying people for hire in revenue service. And all of a sudden now, we have this big scandal that a third of their pilots, their professional pilots, aren't qualified to be in the front end of an airplane. And people are criticizing you and me for making that kind of allegation or you know assertion about they're not qualified and it was a bad airplane. Guess what? This is a problem that exists in various parts of the world. You and I have seen it. The Pakistanis finally proved it. And oh, by the way, the United States downgraded Pakistan to the point where they will not allow them to fly any of their flag carriers here into the United States. Tell me I'm wrong. And that takes a lot for the government through the State Department to do that. I mean, they move like molasses when it comes to try to get them to shut down somebody that's not safe. I want to know where the hell was the Pakistani government in allowing these folks to have a certificate in their pocket. Well, you and I both know that that supplement their income. Government officials over in certain parts of the world supplement their income by giving approvals to things that they shouldn't be giving approvals to. So maybe that's the case here. We've seen it in India. You know, not too many years ago, we saw in India what a lot of people in getting into the cockpit with licenses that were somehow fabricated. And uh, we've seen that, you know, a lot of those Indian and other country pilots are exported around the whole near and far east to fly airplanes for other countries and other operators because there's a shortage of pilots in that area. Shortage of pilots, there was a shortage of pilots everywhere. So they were able to slide in through the cracks and take these positions and learn on the go. In fact, one of those guys, or more than one, were captains. Yes. I want to know how they made it to the front end of the of the airplane. Okay, yeah, they were able to, quote, demonstrate some level of knowledge and skill and ability and capability to pass some sort of check ride at Pakistani International Airlines. But who the hell is checking? And oh, by the way, you have two guys in an airplane that forget to put the landing gear down? What were they doing? Why did they forget to put an, the landing gear down in a very automated airplane that will tell you, hey, dummy, put the landing gear down? We've had accidents here in the States and around the world where guys have forgotten to put the landing gear down. I remember one way back when Texas International, when they were flying DC-9s, crew had come off uh, the captain and the first officer both had been on vacation came back 
they're flying together. They're going into uh, an airport in Texas, and the captain was talking about the sights on final approach. Oh, yeah, there's a good sandwich shop. There's a good tennis court down there. I play tennis all the time. Meanwhile, they come blasting down final approach with the gear still in the wells. You got the uh, gear warning horn just blaring in the background. All it did was make them talk louder until they touch down with no landing gear. It just floors me that a professional flight crew with two pilots in the cockpit, somebody isn't, you know, aware that the landing gear isn't down. That is truly amazing. And like you said, the horn blaring. You know, do we have too many warnings in the cockpit? I mean, it's a question that, that needs to be asked and answered. Do, yeah. we, do we have too many warnings in the cockpit? We've automated so much of everything. Have we got people on overload now? Are they just tuning it out? And is there an issue, not necessarily so much here in the United States, just because you and I are very familiar with the training that our flight crews go through and others around the world over in Europe and Canada and places like that. But now you have all these airplanes that have been parked. I think that airplane had been parked for two months. And this was, I think, one or the either the first or the second flight that this crew coming off a, an extended layoff got back in the airplane. Are we going to see as the airlines around the world start to ramp up operations and call people back that have been off for a long time or have been furloughed and brought back off furlough? Are we going to see these types of events? Yeah, they go through recurrent training. Yeah, they pass. Yeah, they go to the front end. But are they in sync enough in flying the aircraft to mitigate or eliminate some of these mistakes like this one crew made where they forgot to put the landing gear down? Then they touch down, and then they power up, pull up. They've damaged the engines, and they lost it lost the aircraft trying to make it back to the airport and killed not only everybody on the airplane, but in the small village that they crashed into. When we were out to Seattle for the uh, Boeing review of the improvements they made to the MAX, and during the, the Q&X answer session that was given with Boeing's lead engineers as well as Dennis Mullenberg, the president, that question came up. In fact, it was asked a couple of different ways by several people in the room about the return to service of the MAX and how are we going to ensure that the crew members are trained and are ready to return. And that was shown or seen to be a very short duration period of time where they were going to be on the ground. But now... They haven't yeah. touched that airplane in a long time. And yep. I hope that they listen, they being Boeing and the airlines themselves, because they're responsible for the training, and are ready to spend some money to retrain their crews before they bring them all back now. So it's not just the Max. It's many, many, probably three-quarters of their pilot fleet that will need to go back in the simulator and get refreshed. Well, thank you for that segue, because that was my next pet peeve. You and I had this discussion. I think it was in brevity, but we did have this discussion. I really believe that the environment exists today where the manufacturers now have to take a strong stand. They need to go in and evaluate their customers and their customers' ability to operate their aircraft. I just think that it is ridiculous that you have manufacturers, whether it's Boeing, Airbus, or anybody else, Embraer, Bombardier, whoever, that the manufacturers have got to get together, they have got to create a standard, and they have got to go in and vet the airline. There's airlines popping up all over the world because some rich guy has money and wants to have an airline. All of a sudden now, yeah, they're a client, they're a customer, they're going to pony up you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for these airplanes. 
only to go out there and put an unqualified crew member in there who potentially will cause an accident, which, oh, it wasn't the airline, and oh, it was the poor pilot. He was a victim or she was a victim. Let's go after the manufacturer because it was a lousy airplane. I really believe that the manufacturers now have to take a stand. They have got to put basically a team together. You go in and audit a prospective customer. You find out if they have the wherewithal in their hiring processes, in their training processes, in their maintenance and their oversight, and of course their management processes to operate these aircraft. Because we're just seeing too many ridiculous events or loss of life that are coming back. Yeah, I know Boeing has basically settled 90% of Lion, the Lion Air lawsuits now. That other 10%, who knows, maybe that'll go away too. They still have to deal with Ethiopia. But Boeing is going through this. It could have been just as easy to be Airbus. Airbus still has problems with pitchovers in the A350 or the A330 that have not really been addressed and corrected. They haven't had an accident, so it hasn't been a newsworthy splash. But the fact is, is that I think that the manufacturers have got to do something. Where are the regulators? It's obvious in Pakistan the regulators weren't there to see that, you know, a third of their pilots aren't even qualified. So can you really put the onus on them? It's obvious they're doing whatever to allow these airlines to operate with unqualified crews. And who knows what's going on with the mechanical soundness of their airplanes. You know, the ICAO standard for aviation deals with the authorities for all these countries. Are they capable of doing the job of monitoring and maintaining the standards of their carriers? And that's why the, the U.S. was able to pull the, the authority from Pakistan to fly into the U.S. That's the vehicle for it. Yep. And where were they before these accidents? Where was the monitoring of all these countries? Exactly. You know, and when you look at the IASA audits that are required to be done of all these airlines, that's an international standard. They go in, they charge the airline a hell of a lot of money. They go in, they do a process audit, they find them good to go. Uh, wait a minute here. You know how phony those audits are? I've seen them. I've had to look at them. I've reviewed them. They're process audits. You're basically paying for it. And it has to be done every two years. It costs airlines a lot of money. Every two years, they have to be audited. I just think that right now, it's got to be up to the manufacturers. It's their product. They support their product. They have to at least vet to make sure that these airlines have capable, competent, and qualified crew members in the front end of those airplanes to operate those airplanes as they were designed. You know, one of the bad things personally that I have is I've been around a long time. I remember in the 60s, the later half of the 60s and early 70s, when Boeing sold airplanes to countries, and I'm thinking of one right now, which was Iraq. Back then, they were selling them 707s and 720s, and they sent to that country pilots and maintenance personnel to live with them. For I know the maintenance person personally, he was over there for like a year living with them to get them up to speed on that airplane. And they actually provided pilots to fly the airplanes until they could get pilots trained from that country to fly the airplanes. And fast forward to the late 90s, when I worked for U.S. Air, and U.S. Air was making a transition from an all-analog fleet, early 737s and, and DC-9s, to the Airbuses, that Airbus sent in a whole team of people. In fact, their maintenance person was everywhere on that airline as he bounced around between Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Boston. He was everywhere making sure that the maintenance people knew how to service the airplane. And we were not talking about green mechanics. We're talking about mechanics that have been in this business for a long time. But because they were transitioning from analog to digital, Airbus had severe concerns about that. So it's nothing new for these manufacturers to do that. But it seems to be missing in the last 10 or more years. 
I couldn't agree more. And I just think that the airlines, we know that at least if, you know, you have a code share agreement with an airline around the world, like here in the United States, we saw this when I did Korean Air 801 in Guam. Korean Air had a series of accidents and Delta basically pulled out of the code share with Korean Air and said, you got to get it together because we're not putting our people on your airplanes until you get it together. And Korean Air went out and ended up changing their management, changing their training philosophies, getting a lot of expats in the cockpit to bring their operation up to snuff so that they could regain the trust of their code share partners because that was a lot of revenue lost if you're not a, you're not able to a code share and delta forced their hand to really make some serious changes did they ever i mean they imported a whole bunch of people from around the world to come in and, and work on their operation and it wasn't an overnight deal it went on for a couple of years and that's what it takes when you get one of these operations that go go sideways well, I just think that it's time. I mean, you and I touched on it, you know, as far as the responsibility. It's obvious that the airlines aren't really doing a self-monitoring. We see that with Lion Air. We see it with Ethiopia. We've seen it now here with Pakistan. We see that the regulators, we saw it, we talked about it again with Lion Air. Where were the regulators? Where was the overseer in Lion Air? The Indonesians were silent. Where's the oversight with Ethiopia? That's been silent. And you can't depend on the regulators. You can't depend on the airlines. I think the manufacturers have to take the ball and run with it and vet these airlines. They have to come up with a joint standard that everybody can live with, and that's what they're going to vet. Yeah, there's still competition in selling them airplanes, and you're still going to have airlines who are going to look at whatever their mission profiles are and see what airplane will best fit it. But the fact is, is that the manufacturers are going to have to take the first step in trying to mitigate the risk. Because every time there's an airplane crash, it is the airplane and the poor pilot and, oh, my God. And, in fact, the facts do not support that Lion Air, that MAX, was caused by the airplane. It was caused by improper operation, improper maintenance, a variety of things. And the pilots could have successfully put that airplane on the ground had they really understood what they were doing. And it's obvious that they didn't. And I know I'll probably get some pushback and people are going to fire off wonderful emails. But you know what? What else are we going to do? And we're in a period right now COVID-19 put a lot of airplanes on the ground, put a lot of people out of business. It's going to change. And you and I have talked about this in another podcast. The aviation business is changing for good. It is not going to be the way it was. And I think this is a perfect opportunity for the manufacturers to get together and rethink how business is done, how aircraft sales are done. Because the liability I mean, you know, every time there's a major accident, you and I both know it's not just one insurance carrier. They spread the joy across the industry, and it costs everybody money. That's right, whether they're responsible or not. The airline will pay a piece, and the manufacturers will pay a piece. Sometimes the FAA will pay a piece if air traffic control had a role. Sometimes they pay when there really isn't any involvement just to get the release from all the passengers so that they don't get a supplemental or a second tier lawsuit. So that, that whole insurance game is interesting. While I was at the board, I found that very, very fascinating. Yeah. In fact, they actually, even before I went to the board, when I was doing some of those last accidents before I got on the board, it's very fascinating to see how the insurance business works around accidents. Yeah. yeah. But the insurance industry has got to see all of this stuff, too. And I know some of these, especially in the general aviation side, some insurance companies are very proactive in trying to get out in front of it. But they, I think that they face the same problems that we talked about early in this podcast. They send the message out there, but it doesn't get received. We're transmitting, but no one's listening. But you know, I mean, and you and I have had some discussions with folks that we know in the insurance business. It's, it's this stagnant thinking. It is this stoic thinking. 
what's in it for me? If I spend all this money and put all these programs, policies, procedures, training in place, what's in it for me? My insurance company isn't lowering my rates. Why should I do it? The government doesn't care. The FAA doesn't care that I'm doing this. They just say meet the standard. And unfortunately, we live in a society of incentives. This what's in it for me. And I think that we really have to take a deep dive and look at if the insurance companies go in and they do a vetting, they do the audits, they do basically a health check of these carriers, or they do a health check of flight schools, or they do a health check of individuals like me who owns an airplane. I do all this training. I do recurrent training. I do online training. And if I can demonstrate to my insurance company, hey, I do all of this stuff, give me the benefit of it. Knock off 5% on my insurance. And that was one of the things that when I was with a Vemco with one of my airplanes, as long as you did recurrent training, did online courses, you sent them the certificate of completions and that kind of stuff, they reduced my insurance rate. That was great because I had three other pilots on my, on my insurance policy. That worked well for us. Those are the kinds of incentives on a grander scale. Yeah, you're not going to give 5% back to an airline, but 1% in insurance saving at an airline is a heck of a lot of money. And I think that the industry really has to start looking at how we can incentivize progress and encourage and empower these folks because everybody talks a good story. You and I have a job that shows that, yeah, they talk the talk, but they sure as hell didn't walk the walk. Boy, that's true. That's true. So where do we go from here? I mean, we've had, when you, you look at all these programs that were put in place, push because of the FAA and push because of other groups, you know, the helicopter is the first one that comes to mind. All these tour operators with all the crashes that they're involved with. And we've yeah. had safety program after safety program after safety program in place for helicopters. We put them in place, things go well for a while, and then we're back up again. I mean, what's the dynamic that leads to that? And, and I don't think we've had people looking at it. We focus on human factors because we have so many pilots and mechanics that are making bad decisions. But we're not getting to it for some reason. We're not reaching into it. I, I think that the insurance companies really control what's going on with these carriers, with these individuals. I have to demonstrate. I mean, if my insurance company said, Greg, okay, we see your certificates, your ratings, and this is the airplane you're going to fly. We require you to have so many hours in type, make and model, whatever. That's fine. I understand that. That's the normal process. But they should be asking me, what kind of recurrent training are you doing? Well, I don't do any recurrent training. I just meet the FAR. I just do a, an annual flight review or whatever. If I'm a high risk, I'm flying a $3 million Piper Meridian or an M600, and I've got 250, 300, 400 hours. I think that they should require that you demonstrate that you either flying with a mentor pilot, going to recurrent every six months until you have accumulated a certain level of experience in the aircraft. They could put these stipulations in place. If you're a serious aviator and you're a serious aircraft owner, I'll meet those standards. Why? Because I want the freedom of being able to fly my own airplane. You will weed out all of those looky-loos, the weekend warriors, the guys who have an airplane, but you know they haven't flown in forever, and they throw the rule book out the window. Do you have a current medical? No. Are you basic med? No. Do you have a medical at all? No. I mean, you have a boatload of those people sitting out there. Why? Because they operate an airplane out in the boonies, and they don't think anybody's looking. And they aren't. Yeah, that's right. The FAA can't be anywhere. And, you know, many people don't realize that the FARs, the federal air regulations that cover maintenance and pilots and, and operating procedures, are the minimum standard. 
Yeah. They're not the gold standard. They're the minimum standard. If you meet that, the FAA says that if you meet their standards, you have a safe operation. Doesn't mean you can't go above those. And in the commercial aviation business, we used to routinely go above those. But slowly yeah. over time, as money became uh, more and more squeezed after the CAB went away, that was Civil Aeronautics Board, which used to control all the airlines. After they went away and we had deregulation, money became tighter and tighter and tighter. And many of those processes that we used in the 60s and 70s slowly deteriorated down to much closer to, to the FAA minimum standards. And there's a consequence for that. There's a price to pay. Well, I think the insurance, the aviation insurance industry needs to get together collectively. I think the manufacturers need to get to get together collectively. Not only the airframers, but you know, engine manufacturers because they all have this liability issue, and come up with some standards and come up with some incentives to encourage these people. Hell, I got a puppy. I mean, I tell him to sit. He just looks at me. I tell him to sit. He looks at me. I give him a treat. He'll sit. He'll lay. He'll roll over because he knows what the incentive is. And unfortunately, we are of that mentality. And I hear it a lot. Well, what's in it for me? Why should I do it? Why should I go above and beyond? Why should I do more than I'm asked to do? What do I get out of it besides personal satisfaction? And I just think that because of that mentality and that attitude, okay, yeah, we're going to have to cater to it. But you can have a regulatory authority. You can have a manufacturer. You can have an insurance industry dictate the standards. Yeah, we'll give you all of this. We'll give you a good price. We'll give you a good benefit. We'll do all of these things. But you have to demonstrate that you're going above and beyond or you're going to meet these standards that we have set forth. I think it's time because you and I and the industry have seen all these major airline accidents. We know what it's costing. I mean, yeah, Boeing is settling these. Boeing is settling it, but they're not doing it only out of their own pocket. That joy is going to be spread in the price of airplanes to new customers, in the price all the way pass through to the passengers who are going to buy the airline tickets to get on that airplane. I mean, it's just, I think now we have to reinvent parts of the industry. We have got to do something to incentivize safety because just talking about it doesn't work. Everybody and their mother has a safety management system. So what? Those carriers are still crashing airplanes and still killing people. Yeah, I think in the beginning when we came with an SMS system, that we were just happy to have everybody finally onesie twosies signing on to get one in place. Now we have to raise the bar. We have to go in there and make sure that the, the system is robust and that we're building upon it. We're actually acting on what's found and what's disclosed. We haven't done that very good. Some segments of the business community, business aviation community, have in fact been doing that. But it's not universal across aviation, and it really needs to be. Yeah. Low-speed ailerons, normal and auto. Rudder travel pitch field. Fine. Nav exterior lights. Servo control. Fine. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Hello. Seat belt no smoke. Well, John, I, I mean, you know, you and I, we could talk about this. I, I would just hope that, you know, there are some calls to action. You know, the manufacturers, I really think, need to take control of who they sell their airplanes to so that you can get off of that old argument that unfortunately really reared its ugly head during the Boeing 737 MAX discussions with uh, Mullenberg and Boeing. And the fact is people were saying, you're putting profits over safety. That's why they ignored the MCAS. They didn't really bet it. It shouldn't have been on the airplane, blah, blah, blah. The fact is, is that they need to now demonstrate that it really is safety over profits. And I think the way to do that is for the manufacturers to take control of who their customers are. They're going to buy airplanes. That's a given. If they want to fly and they want to move people, they're going to buy airplanes. The question is, 
are there crews, are there maintenance folks, is there management structure robust enough, sound enough to be operating that piece of equipment? And I think this is an opportunity. And I think the insurance industry also has an opportunity to weigh in on not only the commercial airliners, but in general aviation as well, because we've got to get control of this. We're still losing too many airplanes for the same old reasons. Yeah, and it seems today we're losing airplanes full of people. I can remember years ago, 20 years, 30 years ago, we lose a lot of airplanes, but they were single pilot usually, or seemed yeah. to be a, a lot more single pilots than we have today. Today, they seem to be airplanes full of people, four or six passengers, sometimes more with a bunch of kids in there. That's right. They're high tech. They're larger aircraft. You have folks that don't have a lot of, quote, flight time experience, but they have all the whiz-bang stuff. And what they lack in skills, abilities, knowledge, they transfer that lack of skill, ability, and knowledge into the airplane because the airplane can do so much more than them. They have an autopilot. They have weather. They have terrain. And as long as you can follow the magenta line and program the GPS and then execute the approach, you're good to go. And oh, by the way, now we have airplanes with auto land. The M600 has the halo system. It's an auto land system. So now, not only did we put a parachute on general aviation airplanes so that when pilots got themselves into trouble or trouble found them, they had a bailout. They pulled the chute. Well, we see that that works occasionally, doesn't work all the time. Pilots don't pull the trigger all the time. So now we're putting a system in that's auto land. So now a pilot's going to make a decision. They're going to put themselves in a position of jeopardy, especially when it comes to weather or flying in, in a place or in, in an environmental condition they shouldn't have ventured off into because they really didn't have the requisite skills. But they got this backup. They figure if they push the little button, you know, the emergency land button, that if they screw something up and they really get behind the power curve, the airplane will take control and fix the problem. And all I see is problems going forward. Getting worse. I mean, we've talked about autom depending upon the automation too much for a long time. A really long time. When, when are we going to deal with it? Yeah. Well... I know that hopefully we get somebody thinking about this. I hope that the folks that are listening to our podcast, especially this one, I mean, you know, you and I rant and rave to each other, but I really hope that now the industry steps back, takes a look. I think this is a good time to reinvent a variety of different aspects of aviation. We've got to do it. We cannot keep going down the same old path talking our way through it because it, the talk isn't isn't working but i can't wait to get back in the studio with you so i can rant and rave in person with you <laughs> so that uh, we can jump around and point fingers at each other and do all the other things that we used to do i know that once we get our youtube channel really cranking people are going to want to see that interaction i know i would want to see our interaction because it's quite entertaining most of the time yeah, people don't realize what goes on behind the scenes sometimes. But we do yeah. have some interesting discussions, some of which get cut out of this one during editing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have a professional editor, a company that is in business to do editing, and they clean up some of our language and, and some of the glitches that we have in here, and sometimes we misspeak and we want to re-record it. So we do take lots of effort and that means money, into making sure that we're accurate as we can be with what we say and not offend yep. anybody except with facts. Yeah, and we've seen the response from a, a fair number of people in the recent month who have sent us emails at our email address of flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com giving us feedback on the shows, what they like, what they don't like, and, you know, you and I, we sit here and we talk about these subjects and we're very passionate. And we bring perspectives 
And, you know, some people say, well, you know, but what about this and what about that? And we appreciate that because, you know, we try to factor in as many different perspectives as we can. But then we get we try to drive back to the facts that, hey, this is what the facts say. That's an emotional response or that's an emotional decision or whatever. But the facts say this. And that's what we always try to do is we try to address where people are coming from. But we use the facts to address it because the facts will speak the truth. And what you and I really think about certain subjects, you know, may not be the appropriate response. But when you and I talk facts and we interpret those facts, that's what speaks volumes. Don't take my word for it. Let the facts speak for themselves. And here they are. You and I are just presenting the facts. But we appreciate the feedback that we get from all of our listeners. I've, I've read some uh, of the recent emails, and we've had some great comments from people. I'm glad that they're really plugged in and paying attention. Hey, so we have a number of ideas for shows that have come from the uh, emails that we get. In fact, we're due to do another uh, episode just answering some of the questions that have come up on those e emails because the list is getting long again. Yep, and people like people like hearing us talk about the backstories on some of the major investigations that we've done. You get to see the front side. If you watch TV, you see the spokesperson for the board or the investigator or whatever. If you read you know, the magazine articles where they try to dissect their report. Again, you only see certain aspects of it. Even if you were to read the NTSB report, you only get to see the front side of the investigation. You see what the facts were that were developed. You see the interpretation of those facts and a determination of probable cause. You and I were there. We know what the backstories are. We know what the behind-the-scenes stories are, kind of like Entertainment Tonight, if you will, where they want to tell you what's going on with the stars behind the scenes. Well, those are interesting stories because a lot of the exercises, a lot of the decisions, a lot of the things that we've all been involved with were necessary to come to a positive conclusion or resolution or accomplish tasks to get the investigative process completed. Well, that's a story for another podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, my friend, it's always good to talk to you. Thanks for letting me vent today. <laughs> um, it was one of those things where I was feeling John Golia torqued, so I decided to go off. So, with that being said, thanks for listening to our podcast, Flight Safety Detectives. Definitely stay in touch with us. Contact us through our website or through our, our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And uh, we look forward to talking to you in the next episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Okay. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.